turn back to that uh, story in Judges, and that's where we're going to be looking tonight, uh, but now I'll lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that all Scripture is breathed by you, it's all your Word, and so it's all useful for teaching us, correcting us, rebuking us, training us in righteousness. Uh, and Father, we pray as we look at this very, very difficult story from the Old Testament tonight, that you will help us to understand it, first of all, but then uh, more than that, you'll help us to apply it to our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are uh, some stories in the book of Judges that make you laugh. So uh, we've seen a few of those. You know, we, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the story of Gideon and how God divides them on the basis of how they drink. Uh, some people get down on their knees and God says, no, you go home. Other people pick the water up with it. You know, just, it's sort of funny in a strange sort of way. Then there's that sort of dark humour in stories like Ehud, do you remember the guy who shoves his sword into the very fat king and loses his sword? And even though it's serious stuff and even though it's about God's salvation and all these important themes, it's humorous, makes you laugh. Uh, today's story has no humour. It's just incredibly sad, I think. Uh, it's sad because you see how horribly Jephthah was treated, first of all. You see human beings and human sin at its worst uh, because Jephthah, it wasn't Jephthah's fault that he was born because his father had an affair uh, and yet his family and his village kicked him out, didn't want anything to do with him. You know, that's human sin, that's the way human beings treat each other but even sadder is the way Jephthah, who in many ways is an impressive man of God, uh, he's actually I think one of the most impressive men at the start of the story anyway in the book of Judges, uh, but he just makes this terrible, terrible mistake and you get this tragic end of the story where Jephthah does something awful in the name of God. He does something God doesn't want him to do, he does something God doesn't desire but he does it, he sacrifices his daughter and it's just a shocking story. But I want you to be able to get past that because I think as we get past that shockingness we'll actually find there's a lot for us to learn from this story. So let's get into it. Now we read the main part of the story in chapter 11 before but we've got to go back to chapter 10 for the start of the story and it's an all too familiar story. Look from verse 6, of chapter 10. It says, then the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we have heard that just over and over and over again in the book of Judges and it says, they worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And then a little further down, they abandoned Yahweh and did not worship Him. See, reading the book of Judges is a bit like watching those movies that have sequel after sequel but in fact, there's no sort of progression in the story, you know, so it may be a bit before many of your time, but the Rocky movies were a bit like that. Rocky 1 was nominated for an Oscar. They thought, what a great story. And then there was Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and Rocky 5. And by the time you end up watching Rocky 5, you're sort of going, I've seen this story somewhere before. It's just different actors, same story. A bit like Sharknado probably is a more recent <laughs> example. Uh, but that's what's going on here. We're sort of like at the Rocky 5 moment where it's just happening all over again. Israel abandons God and worships idols instead. And again, God rightly loses patience with Israel. God judges them by handing them over to the tyranny of other nations who oppress them. This time, it's the Ammonites. And especially copying it this time is this part of Israel called Gilead. All these names are a bit confusing, I find, anyway. Now, I'm going to use the clicker here to help our PowerPoint person at the back. Uh, but there we go, we've got a map today. So the region they were particularly attacking, which way will it be on this screen? 
is over here, thanks Troy, is over on this side. So the main part of Israel is over this side, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, but you see where it's got Gad there on the other side of the Jordan and then up above towns called Jabesh Gilead and other Gileads. That's the area where that was particularly being attacked. So for 18 years, the Ammonites, so you can see Ammon where they are, sort of further out in the desert, they were attacking that part of Israel for 18 years. But then, after a while, they started crossing over the Jordan and attacking the main part of Israel where you see Ephraim and Judah there. And it's sort of like if people were attacking northwest Australia, you know, we mightn't, be, we mightn't like it, but we'd sort of go, oh, well, you know, whatever, it's a lot of desert. But then if they get to Sydney and Melbourne, people go, hang on, come on. Well, that's sort of what happened here. They got to Ephraim and Judah where, where proper Israel was and, and then they said, hang on, we better cry out to the Lord like we've done all those other times. So they say, God's going to save us again. But this time, God says, No. God says, I have delivered you so many times and every time you turn back to idols and you start worshipping other idols. So why don't you try for a little while crying out to idols? Why don't you cry out to them, your other gods, your Baals and your Asterisks and let's see if they listen to you. So God says, no, 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 I'm not going to answer your cries. But Israel really seems to repent this time. They admit their sin, they smash their idols, they get rid of them. But here's the thing. God still doesn't respond. And this is really, really important. You cannot twist God's arm to make him do whatever you want. You see, this is really important. Our repentance does not make God forgive us. Please get this right. It's not like God is sitting there and he says, when they turn back to me, then I'll forgive them. No, no, no. God forgives us out of his love and out of his grace. And our repentance is only ever a response to God's forgiveness. So don't try and make deals with God and we'll see that even more in a moment, how badly that goes in this story. And so here it actually says, look at verse 16, it says, the reason God relented was he just became weary of Israel's misery. That was the reason. God just did not want to see them suffer anymore. He said, this is my people, this is the nation of Israel, the people I love, even though they deserve it, I can't bear to see it anymore. But God still hasn't acted. God hasn't raised up a leader for them like he has in the past. There isn't a, 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 an Ehud at this stage just yet. So they start looking for one themselves, but they can't find one. There's no great warrior who sort of looks like a likely candidate. But then they remember Jephthah. So let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a great warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah did not come from good stock, he hadn't been to the right schools, that sort of stuff. In fact, he was a bit of a a worry, you know what I mean? He was someone who they didn't like the fact that he was one of them. Worse than that, they had driven him out of town, it tells us. They'd kicked him out, said, we don't want you. But but some people are just leaders and, and Jephthah was one of those men and so all the outcasts, everyone from around the place who'd been kicked out of their towns, the tough guys, if you like, who society had rejected, they all sort of got together around Jephthah and he was this mercenary general with a mercenary army who who was just sort of doing all sorts of stuff. He's a bit like David, you know the story of David a little later on in Israel's history where David sort of has to flee Saul and then all the outcasts come and, and form around him and he becomes a great general. Well, that's like this guy. 
And so at last, the people come to this man they'd rejected and they say, we need you to lead us in fighting the Ammonites. But here's where you get an insight into Jephthah. He's actually an impressive man and he's actually a bit of a politician. He's a bit of a deal maker because he doesn't say yes straight away. He works out, if I string them along a little bit, I'll get more out of this. And so, look at verse 7. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why then have you come to me now when you're in trouble? It's a fair call, isn't it? You know, it's a bit rich coming and asking for my help now. And so, he sort of made them feel a bit guilty and so in response, they sweeten the deal. They say, well, if you lead our armies and if you win, we'll make you the boss permanently. You can be our permanent judge. Now, how has that gone for Israel in the past when they get a sort of rebel mercenary leader to be their king or their... It hasn't gone well, has it? And so the son of a prostitute who they kicked out of town takes the deal. But in his response, you see that Jephthah is in some sense a man of God because he recognises that God has to be behind him if this is going to work. So look from verse 9. So Jephthah said to them, if you are bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. You see that? He's recognising this is only going to work if God's behind it. This is only going to work if God is behind what I do. And so in verse 11, they sort of sign a contract, they sign a deal, but Jephthah makes them do it in the presence of the Lord, it says. He's saying this is a covenant and we're recognising that God is in control of it all, not us. So Jephthah is wanting to follow God. He's not just a mercenary. In some sense, he's a man of faith. Well, Jephthah gets about leading. Remember, he's a renegade leader of a mercenary army, so we're expecting him just to march straight off to war. But he doesn't. Again, he's a bit of a politician. He actually tries diplomacy first. You can read, we didn't read this before, verses 12 to 28. Uh, you can read it later on. But basically, he goes, sort of like you know, when Donald Trump met with the leader of North Korea, or it's a bit like that sort of. But anyway, he goes and talks to the Ammonite king and he tries to talk about whose land is whose and historically, isn't this Israel's land? Why are you attacking us? But very quickly, it seems like the only answer is going to be war. And so again, Jephthah shows himself to be impressive in the way he keeps turning to God as the one who's in charge. So look at how he finishes in verse 27. He says, he's talking to the king of, Ammonite, of the Ammonites, he says, I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. And then he says, let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. See, whatever else Jephthah is and whatever else he becomes, he is a man of faith. The incredible thing is, this guy who does this awful thing is actually included in your New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, as a hero of the faith, like Gideon and the other judges. Because he is impressive, despite his unimpressive beginnings. He knows that God is in control. He knows that if he wins the battle, it is because God made it happen, not because he's some great general. Jephthah, at this point, actually, I think, has more potential to be a great leader than any of the other people in the whole book of Judges. And so now, God puts his hand on Jephthah. Look at verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. That's God saying, this is my one. That's God anointing him and saying, this is the man I will use to save my people from the Ammonites. It's God saying, the victory is yours, 
Jephthah, I am with you. And it all starts well. Jephthah travels through Gilead and Manasseh, raising up armies to go and fight the Ammonites. And we just sort of wish at this point the story said, and he went and fought the Ammonites and won. But he doesn't. Instead, he does something strange and awful. But actually, sort of understandable. He doubts God. You see, for whatever reason, he doesn't believe that victory is certain. Like Gideon a couple of weeks ago, do you remember how Gideon sort of had to test God, said, I know you've said you're with me, but I want you to prove it? Well, sadly, Jephthah says, I don't know that God's going to give me the victory, so maybe I need to twist God's arm. And he tries to bargain with God, just like he'd bargained with the leaders and like he'd bargained with the Ammonite king. Look at verse 30. It says, Jephthah made this vow to the Lord, if you will hand over the Ammonites to me, Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Our English translations put whatever comes out of the door uh, as if he's contemplating a lamb sort of bouncing down the driveway when he gets home. Uh, but the word means whoever. See, Jephthah seems to be saying to God, I'll give you a life if you give me the victory. Now, I think he's probably assuming it will be a servant, someone he doesn't particularly care much about. But he's saying, I will give you a human sacrifice if you give me the victory. Now, it is almost impossible for us to comprehend Jephthah doing this, isn't it? How could he think that the God we know in the Bible would want this? God hates the taking of human life. Hasn't he read the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. See, one of the reasons the other nations were under God's judgment was because they did this sort of stuff. They sacrificed people to Molech. You see, and more fundamentally, God doesn't need to have his arm twisted. See, he'd already put his spirit on you, Jephthah. You, you know, the victory is certain already. Time and time again, he saved his people, even though they don't deserve it, and even though they've done nothing to earn it. So we just sort of go, Why? Why would you do this, Jephthah? But to be fair to Jephthah, remember he didn't grow up going to Sunday school or Saturday school as it would have been then. Uh, Israel in his lifetime, for the little bit that he was part of Israel, they didn't worship Yahweh. Baal was in the centre of the towns. They turned their backs on God and worshipped idols. More than that, he was kicked out of society and he had gone and lived amongst the pagans who worshipped Molech and all these other gods. And that was how those gods worked. That was what pagan religion was like. You have to twist the arms of the gods by offering sacrifices to make them do what you want them to do. See, we're not even certain Jephthah knew there was only one God. He seemed to know that Yahweh was the best God, but we don't know that he didn't think he wasn't just sort of one of many. None of this excuses him. What, what he did was wrong in every way. But we need to remember to judge him against what he knew, not what we know. Well, he goes off to battle and God gives him the victory. Look at verse 32. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter and so on and so forth. It's a total victory. And do you see how it's God's work? What does it say there? The Lord handed them over to him. But that wasn't because Jephthah had made a vow. God wasn't sort of saying, hey, I'll keep that side of the bargain. God had already decided 
to give him the victory the moment he put his spirit upon him. And so now we come to the horrible moment. Jephthah comes home and who comes out of the door to meet him? His only daughter. And Jephthah is devastated, but he sees no way out. Look at verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. But if you're feeling sorry for Jephthah, do you notice how he blames everyone else but himself there? See where he says, you have devastated me? Is he, is he talking to his daughter at that point? Is he saying, you, why did you come out of the house first? Why didn't you send one of the servants out? Seems like he's blaming his daughter, or perhaps he's blaming God. You know, why didn't you make a servant walk out first rather than my daughter? But the thing is, Jephthah is the one who is responsible for this. Jephthah is to blame. He should have said, I have devastated myself. And I have devastated my family. Just before we get to thinking about what should Jephthah have done at this point and what lessons we need to learn, before we do that, we need to actually go back a step to see the mistake Jephthah made was back at the beginning in making the vow at all. This is sort of the example par excellence of why Jesus says, do not make vows. Just look again at Matthew chapter 5, I think I've got it. On the screen, here we go. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. So he said, that's, that's the law that Jephthah thought, I've got to keep. I've made an oath to the Lord. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. I just wonder if Jesus had Jephthah in mind when he said that. See, what Jesus says to us is, our God is faithful, and so if we are his people, be faithful, be trustworthy. Just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. If you say, I'll be there, be there. If you say, I'll do it, do it. Don't be someone who other people think, I wonder if he really meant that when he said it. I better make them make a vow to make sure they really keep their word. You know, like on those shows like Survivor, like I swear on my mother's grave. That's because we know everything else you tell us is a lie and you're not trustworthy and true. Jesus says, don't be someone like that. Don't swear oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's not the main point of this passage, that's an aside, because now I want to consider three closing thoughts. And the first is, well, having done it, having made the mistake of making an oath, what should Jephthah have done? Now, if you immediately think, well, he shouldn't have gone ahead with it, then you're right. But if you jump there too quickly, I want to challenge you. See, if you think this is simple... And you don't actually feel the real tension of what Jephthah says in verse 35, then I think you don't understand how serious it is to lie to God. So you've got to let God's word really mess around with you and make you uncomfortable before you really let it apply to you. Just look at verse 35, look what he says. 
He says, I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Now, if you found that verse anywhere else in the Bible, anywhere other than here where the word was, I'll kill my daughter, you would say, exactly right, Jephthah. If you have given your word to the Lord, you cannot take it back. You see, the right response to this story is not what I think many modern Christians would think where they would say, oh, it was really silly of me to make a vow, God wouldn't want me to do that, so I'll just ignore it. That's actually just sinful in another way, sinful in presuming on God's grace. Now, Jephthah should have known that God hates murder. He should have known that God abhors the idea of human sacrifice. So, at this point, he should have said, what have I done? I've put myself in a situation where I break one law to keep another law. What do I do here? And having made the promise, Jephthah should have repented. He should have begged God for mercy. Do you notice that other than his, what have you done to me moment, which may have been talking to God, may have been talking to his daughter, do you notice that he does not pray or talk to God at all? Do you see that? In this whole little story. He should have said, God, what I have done is so stupid. What I have done is so sinful, I beg you to forgive me and give me another way. And I must admit, I wonder if the right thing for him to do might have been to say to God, take my life instead. I actually wonder if the right thing for Jephthah to do in this circumstance would be to say, I'm the one who made this stupid promise. I'm the one who sinned, not my daughter, so let me pay the price. And do you notice how it's Jephthah's daughter who is remembered by the people of Israel, not Jephthah? It's she who is seen as the impressive one, he's seen as the fool. But in the end, the problem for Jephthah was that he really didn't know God. That was the problem. He knew God was holy. He knew God was to be feared. And they are aspects of God's character that we modern Christians need to know a little bit better. You see, he knew you don't presume on God's forgiveness. He knew that you only approach God with all humility, always confessing our sin. Jephthah knew that side of God, if you like, but he didn't know that God is gracious. And so he thought that the one true God was just like the idols he'd grown up with. He thought you had to bribe God. He thought you had to bargain with God to make Him help you. And frankly, all too often, Christians do the same. You see, that's works-based religion. That's idolatry is just works-based religion. If, if I do enough good things, then God will accept me and maybe even bless me. That's the religion of Jephthah, but that's not the God of the Bible, is it? And it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in our salvation. God doesn't save you because you've twisted His arm. God doesn't save you because you've asked Him to. God saves you despite you not because you deserve it. And God saves me, despite me, not because I deserve it. God saves us because He loves us, not because we love Him. See, Romans 5 captures this better than any other passage of the Bible, I think. Look at it on the screen. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8, But God proves His own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the Christian gospel is not us bargaining with God. It's not us saying, God, I know I've got a problem, I'll trust you if you help me out. 
The Christian gospel is while we are sinners, while we are helpless, he sends his son to die, to pay the price for our sin. And what do we do? We don't bargain with God, we just accept that free gift of salvation by faith. It's the same with prayer. When we pray, we are not twisting God's arm to give us things he does not want to give us. I think Christians often have this funny view of prayer that's a lot like Jephthah. Now, we pray to our Father trusting that he loves us and wants to give us all good things. Unless I'm really weird, and that is certainly a possibility, um, I think every Christian at some point has prayed one of these prayers. If you do this for me, God, then I will do this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because that might show that I'm really weird as the only person who's done this, but I think we all do it. Every teenage boy, sorry if you're a teenage boy here, has prayed, God, if you make that girl like me, I'll go to church every week. Lots of people pray, God, if you give me that job I really want, then I'll give generously and I might even tithe. I'm using silly examples, though I don't think they're that silly because in our faithlessness, we pray those prayers. We think sort of we can bargain with God. I'll do this for you, God, if you do this for me. We tend to pray those prayers when we think God doesn't really want to give us the thing we're praying for. They're silly because you do not bargain with God. And you don't bargain with God because you don't need to bargain with God because we know and we pray to the God who loves us and wants what is best for us, though not always what we think is best for us. My final point is about Jesus and Jephthah because someone might say, hey, you said God hates the idea of, uh, of human sacrifices, but isn't Jesus a human sacrifice? Isn't Jesus a person sacrificed for our sin? And certainly some people say, how can you believe in a God who wanted his son to die? That's just divine child abuse. But that is to miss the point of what happens at the cross and to miss the point of what happens in the death of Jesus. When Jesus died, it is not an innocent third party dying to twist God's arm to forgive humanity. See, I hear Christians talk about the death of Jesus like this quite a lot. They sort of say, God the Father is really angry, and so God the Son dies, and God the Father goes, oh, all right, I'll forgive them because you've died for their sin. That is not what's happening at the cross. At the cross, God the Father says, I need to judge sin because that is righteous and because justice demands, us, demands it, but I want to forgive my people. And so he says, not only will I pay, judge sin, but I'll do it by me providing the sacrifice. So Jesus is not some innocent third party, he is God the Son absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. You see, God's justice and mercy happen at the same time in the death of Jesus. And that is why this story points us to Jesus by showing us what Jesus' death is not. See, Jesus' death is not us twisting God's arm by us sacrificing Jesus in our place. What it is, is God satisfying His justice so that He can forgive us by sending His Son to willingly take our place. That's why you are right to be horrified by the death of Jephthah's daughter. But you should never stop praising God for the death of Jesus.
That's why the death of Jesus is glorious and not horrible, like this story. And that's why you don't need to twist God's arm. If you like, God twists his own arm for us. We just need to accept his gift. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, even though it shocks us and we struggle with it. We thank you that it is your word and so it does teach us. And Father, we pray that we would not be like Jephthah, that we would not think that we need to twist your arm and bargain with you. Instead, we pray that we would understand that you have already sent your son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he does that willingly on our behalf. And so we pray that we would accept that gift by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.